0: Kingdom community is set apart. It is holy. It is a special type of community. It is a community of believers. It is the family of God. Um, in Matthew 12, 48 through 50, Jesus says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my, bro- is my mother and f- sister is my brother and sister and mother. So kingdom community is the church, kingdom community is small groups, and um, this class is is predominantly about hospitality, so I won't speak about kingdom community for very long, but as our group's director, in my experience, I just wanted to share that, in my opinion, the biggest hindrance to kingdom community is idealism. Um, ideals, are often so unrealistic and unattainable that if you demand them, and that doesn't mean it has to be a verbal demand, but in your head, you're demanding them, then you will bounce from group to group to group, one church to the next to the next, one relationship to the next to the next. John Mark Comer said that. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who you've heard our pastors talk about, he said, the sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and a community, the better for both. Every human wish or dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who lives the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with demands, um, uh, With demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God and himself accordingly. He comes in with a heart posture of demand rather than one of grateful reception. Um, so basically, I've, I've witnessed this and I've heard this in my experience as a groups director. And so I just wanted to share that before we go into hospitality, that in your small groups and even in the church, um, if you recognize that you have any part in you that has um, ideal idealistic vision of what your community looks like don't allow it to to judge your community Um, kingdom community takes time and it takes commitment and it takes a willingness to be vulnerable if we look at even the 12 disciples like matthew was a tax collector so he was a jew but he worked for the enemy the rome the romans who were oppressors of the jews and then simon was a zealot which was this very violent sect of uh, first-century Jews who kind of used guerrilla tactics to come against the uh, Romans. And so you can just imagine the tension that existed within Jesus's own small group, you know? And so um, if you are in a small group and every single person in that small group is your friend, awesome. But if that's not the case, that doesn't mean that you guys are getting it wrong. You know, um, something that Rosaria Butterfield says in her book, The gospel comes with a house key is, where people all think the same, people don't think much at all. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in a small group where there might be some tension sometimes, that's probably really helpful um, for the growth of you uh, as you transform into the image of Christ. So now we get into hospitality. Hospitality, the Greek word that is in the New Testament is Phylosenia, meaning the love of the stranger, literally the opposite of xenophobia fear of the stranger and the goal of hospitality is to as a Christian make a stranger a friend and make a friend family and when we say family we mean kingdom community family of God family and as a Christian hospitality is not an option in Hebrews 13 2 it says do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by doing so some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it And in Luke 14, 12 through 14, Jesus says, Then he told the man who had invited him, he's at this banquet. When you invite people for lunch or dinner, don't invite only your friends and family, other relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they will return the favor, which is like what we expect, right? Like your house next time. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the handicapped, the lame, the blind, then you will be blessed because they don't have any way to pay you back. You will be paid back when those who have God's approval come back to life. And <clears throat> so some barriers when it comes to hospitality. One is comfort. And for comfort, I'm going to actually plug a sermon that Pastor Josh Romano, J.R., gave today, a year ago. What are the chances, right? I was like, no way. I like looked that up. I was like, when was that? And it was like October tenth, twenty twenty-two. I was like, shoot, okay. You doing it again, God? Okay. And so, look it up on the podcast. It's on that date. So he might have gave it a couple days before, but it was published on the podcast that day. You get it. <laughs> and uh, the other barrier is worry and fuss. So let's look at this story that I'm sure you all know from Luke ten. As they were traveling along, Jesus went into a village. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary. Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to him. But Martha was upset about all the work she had to do. So she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work all by myself? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you worry and fuss about a lot of things. There's one thing you need. Mary has made the right choice, and that one thing will not be taken from her. That word worry in the Greek is merimnao, and it means to be anxious. And that word fuss is um, the Greek word torbodzo, and it means to be troubled in mind. And these words are speaking to the fact that Mary has this anxiety, and her thoughts are being pulled in all the directions of what she needs to do. And... um, Honestly, when uh, I I can recognize these anxieties when it comes to hospitality, I think something that I definitely need to work on is is allowing the house to not look perfect. And if somebody offers to help with a chore, my immediate thing is like, oh no, like you're gonna see like my dirty dishes. Like I don't want you to see my dirty dishes or something like that. And we have to rid ourselves of that because. Um, hospitality is not about making sure others feel like guests it's making others feel like family and family take part in your chores family don't mind that they see your dirty dishes family doesn't mind that they contributed to those dirty dishes and therefore can help make them clean again you know and so um (laughs) i think like you know you might like when I sit on talks like this, it's easy to think like, oh, the the person that's talking over this topic has arrived. And it's like, no, like honestly, everything we talk about hospitality, I need to work on it. And, and I'm, I'm thankful that I got to like look into it so that I could share what I've learned with you guys. Um, so yeah, so worry and fuss, just let it go. (laughs) So those who live out radically ordinary hospitality Do not see their homes as their own, but God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. Rosaria Butterfield, she wrote that book I was talking about. Gospel comes with a house key. She is like an extreme example of hospitality. Her and her husband, they have they they every single night have people over for dinner. They specifically schedule their their um, their week and make a budget that they can accommodate for that many visitors and as I was reading this book I was like oh my gosh I don't know if I could ever do this and then at the very very end of the book she kind of lets you in on like I don't expect for every single Christian's house to look like mine you know we have a we, me and my husband share a very special calling for hospitality however we are all called toward hospitality and because I live such an extreme example I know that you can see things I've done and apply them in what works for you and um, and if you are married for your spouse it's very important that you both be on the same page when it comes to hospitality and something else that she said is me and my husband go at the pace of marathon training and when you train for a marathon I've never done that but apparently (laughs) you go at the pace of who is the slowest um so you're just honoring where your spouse is at and um and So that they they don't get discouraged when you don't set yourselves up for failure as you um, open up your home Um, as christians we should recognize that participating in hospitality is an opportunity to reach the lost an invitation to your table opens up the possibility for strangers to become friends and friends to become family all right now we're going to look at jesus and his hospitality so um the table, right? That second part of what I just said. We should look at our table an invitation to the table as an opportunity for strangers to become friends and friends to become family. So in the Gospel of Luke alone, there are over 50 references to food. New Testament scholar Robert Karras said in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is always either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And in every culture, meals bring people together and in the mediterranean basin of the first century where jesus was table fellowship was a big deal it was not only where people were drawn together but it was a boundary of who wasn't at the table i think of mean girls in regina's like you can't stay with us it was like it was like that like um like the pharisees of the day the Sadducees so- the so- the so- of the day they were alarmed by who Jesus ate with because they never would have done that. And um, something that we need to be aware of is that um, it says that Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he did not sin with sinners. He did not mind the company he kept because there's a very big difference between acceptance and um, um, acceptance and I forgot what I was going to say. Basically, yeah, yeah, base, yeah. Affirmation, you know, um, and and Jesus's conversations with those people definitely were not enabling their sin, you know, um, and in a very gentle way, he was demonstrating what's better than their sin, you know, and demonstrating that how good the kingdom is, and when you when you decide to live a kingdom life, it doesn't come in addition to the life that maybe. Your love now as a sinner it comes in exchange for that and so it has to look really good you know and jesus was he was the pro at making it look good um so <laughs> um uh let's see what else is going to say i'll share these two um quotes i have so another new testament scholar scott Barchi, he was uh, quoted saying it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony ritually symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom you shared the table, was particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. And then another New Testament scholar, uh, and he has a crazy name, JJ, I'm just gonna call him. In the East, even today, to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism, in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God for the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in a meal. Brings the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. (coughs) And then John Mark Comer said, for Jesus, meals were not a boundary marker, but a sign of God's great welcome into the kingdom. Not a way to keep people out, but a way to invite people in. (coughs) Okay, so to close with this portion of the class, I just had this question. What does your immediate table look like? So your immediate table is who is there every day, your immediate family, and um, if w- we cannot expect sharing a meal to facilitate discipleship with strangers, if it isn't doing so with our immediate family, and so um, if your immediate table doesn't have a gospel-centered conversation, if it doesn't, if it's not comfortable to talk about the Bible and to ask each other questions about um, the faith then it's not likely that you're gonna do that with a stranger. And so that's a really great place to start because your family is, is people that you can definitely be vulnerable with and who God has um, brought alongside you to see all parts of who you are and, um, and, and privilege that. And so when you get that right, it becomes easier to invite people into that as well and for it to be authentic. Um, and Because people are pretty smart. Like, we're pretty smart and you can sense when somebody's not being authentic. You know, you can sense if you feel like a project and you know, uh, so yeah, that's that, <laughs> thanks.
1: Thank you, Ms. Rosie, all right. I'm probably gonna spend a lot of time on the board, Oh, maybe not, we'll see what happens. Um so as she was talking about the intimacy of the of the dinner table I want to get in on that and give a perspective of of, of our homes a perspective that has been built over my own upbringing and my understanding of the um, of, of, of of the biblical text um so <coughs> what I want to do acts chapter two verse 41 to forty seven Acts chapter 2, verse 41 to 7. So this is going to be our base scripture. It's Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. The Bible reads, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, okay apostles doctrine for those that are listening and can't see what i'm doing i'm writing on a board probably not spelling everything correctly all right pastor jackson help me apostles doctrine and the next one is what? and fellowship all right pastor jackson are you there okay yeah. all right and then read on for me okay breaking bread, and prayers. Okay, keep going.
0: Uh, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed together uh, were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved.
1: So if you read it from the NIV, that last portion says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So when I was growing up in the beautiful country of Zimbabwe, um, I grew up in a home where my grandmother, someone who owned the house, and there were her three daughters, one of them being my mother, and the other two being my aunts. Did I say that American way correctly? Okay, <laughs> it's aunt, but you know I'm I'm trying to learn. <laughs> and so the dinner table for us looked like this because again it's a big family. Each of those had four children, and then my mom had two and then there are three adults plus my grandmother. So the adults were the ones that sat on the chairs, go figure, and the kids we sat on the ground on the floor. And so what dinner looked like was, there's a big ball of food, two big bowls of food, okay? And we all ate out of the same bowl. And the way it went was the eldest was the first to get the first piece of meat. So if you didn't touch it, you couldn't eat the next piece. You had to wait until the older brother had a piece of meat. And so, if you can imagine it, you've got adults that are sitting and they all have their individual plates. And then you've got <coughs> kids, the boys in one setting and the girls on another. And we're all having a meal. It was often quiet. There's not much conversation that was happening at the time, but the intimacy could could be felt. That everybody that we call family or that we hold dear was present in one room and we were sharing out of the same bowls of plates. So you hygienists out there, you're thinking, (laughs) but here I am, alive and well, so so praise the Lord, (laughs) right? So then this one thing that would happen that would change the dynamics of this setting, and that is if a visitor came to our home. Now, back in the day, and I'm sure those that are older in years would appreciate that this happened back in the day. There was no texting, hey, I'll be there in 10 minutes. All you heard was, and that was it. It Bad news for the kids. Because the moment that stranger walked in, you had to stop eating and your food was taken and given to the stranger. And then you had to wait until food was cooked again for you if you had not eaten. So, most times we race to eat (laughs) to ensure that if any visitor was to come by (laughs) that there's no more food and that they would have to cook some more. But we often didn't make it in time (laughs) Because lo and behold, somebody just knocks on the door and comes in because my grandmother was very, very active in her local church body. People listened to her. People sought her counsel. People went through very difficult circumstances. Though she didn't have much, somehow she was able to respond and give answers or provision to people when they were in need. And so to that end, We had a lot of strangers to us that came to the home. But something would also change, aside from us giving up our meals. All of a sudden, the dinner table did not become a quiet, serene place, but a loud place. As conversations began to happen between my grandmother, the older people, and this visitor who has come into the house. And oftentimes it could get deep enough that we were told to go into our rooms (laughs) so that they could carry out this conversation, but it became lively. And so there's an intimacy that is provided by the dinner table that if you think about it, no other intimacy can be replicated when it comes to the family unit or the family bond. And even when I came into this country, Uh, then getting married and listening to my wife about the intimacy of the dinner table. The difference is everybody sits on a chair and there's a table and everybody (laughs) has their own plate and you don't have to fight for meat, but there is an intimacy (laughs) that is provided there in which conversations are insisted to ask the other, how was your day, what happened, how can I know you better, how can I be a part of your day, and all that culminates at the dinner table. And like what Rosie said, hospitality literally means love for strangers. That if we are wanting to see people come to a place of intimacy, the place in which we invite them to has to be the dinner table. And this is something that I want you to see in terms of your home and what you own. Do you know why we gave up our food to give it to the stranger because the food was really not ours it belonged to my mom or my grandmother because they're the ones who bought the food and gave us the food so they had the power to say stop eating we're going to give this food to this person (laughs) similarly your homes are not your own they belong to your father in heaven you have to see your home As an embassy or an extension of the kingdom of God. You have to see your dinner table as an extension of the kingdom of God. It is an embassy to which you can invite people for them to have a taste of what the kingdom of God looks like. Because the kingdom of God is in you and the kingdom of God is in me. And Jesus said wherever you are, there the kingdom is also, so the moment I'm in my home, the kingdom of God is there. See, the intimacy of a dinner table is an invitation to, bo- to the bond of the family unit. So, what you're doing is when you invite a stranger, now I like to dispel images. I did not know that some people don't think in images. It was weird to me. I still cannot comprehend it. I need an image for that, and I cannot (laughs) find one. But I think in images. So the moment you hear the word stranger, are you seeing the person at the corner of a street wearing clothes that are tattered and torn? Are you seeing somebody who is homeless and is in a homeless shelter, hasn't taken a bath for such a long time that there's a stench, an order that is coming off of them? When you think of stranger, what image do you think? Because based on the image that you think and the presupposition of that image determines the action that you're going to take when you're talking about inviting a stranger. I want you to open up your mind to the stranger That the stranger could be the person sitting right next to you in this particular class is a stranger to you. You have no idea what their cries are. You have no idea what their understanding are because the things that take place at the dinner table is doctrine, teaching, and understanding of what the central text of the Bible is all about. You don't know what the next person thinks. You all think that we all think the same thing. We don't. (laughs) The only way to find that out is to have intimacy. If we lack intimacy, we're not going to have a chance to understand doctrine. We're going to make assumptions that you believe Jesus heals. Maybe when I come close and I find that you don't, and if I seek to, I know you do, I got your back. And if I seek to understand your position and your understanding, in that, we're sharing doctrine and we're sharing the understanding of scripture. That is happening at the dinner table. See, this is what happened prior to this picture that you're seeing in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. What happened prior is there was a betrayal of intimacy. You see, Jesus was at the last supper and he had his disciples with him and there there was an intimate moment it was a moment that they had had before and had experienced intimacy as they were celebrating passover at the dinner table and it is at that moment that judas decides to betray jesus and thereby the innocence the purity of the dinner table was stolen and then after he dies then you get the picture That you're seeing in Acts chapter 2, which is a restoration of that intimacy of the dinner table, which is an expansion of the kingdom of God, no longer of the old order, but of a new covenant, of a new way of doing things. And the expansion that is happening here is that there is an addition that is happening because people are being invited to the place of intimacy, and that is at the dinner table. I do not own my home. Yes, I own it if you ask the government. But the home does not belong to me. My home belongs to the father because I am part of a kingdom. Even though I live in a democracy, but what I am a part of is a kingdom. And in a kingdom, everything belongs to the king. It does not belong to the subjects of the kingdom. It belongs to the king. This is why I get excited. If you ever come to my home, Open up the cupboards. Take whatever you want. Break a plate, if you would. Because that only means God's about to replace it. That's how I feel about it. Because to me, when I see people, you can ask people that have had the chance to come into my home and be intimate with me. It's like, you broke it. It's awesome. We're going to have to get a new one. Yay. It's, It's exciting to me. It's exciting to see people formulate family that are not bonded by blood, but are bonded by the blood of Christ, come together and have a bond that might even be stronger than the bonds that we have with those that we call blood relatives because of the fact that we're bound together by a commonality that is stronger than anything. And so if we are wanting to preach the gospel, like St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. So if we don't want to have the words trip us up, because that's what happens, is when we try to speak the gospel, we get tripped up because of the way that we present it and the words that we choose give so many different meanings. But what will have impact is somebody seeing with their own eyes how do people of the kingdom of God live. If you want to understand what I've just told you about the dinner table in my home in Zimbabwe, I guarantee you that there were many homes that had dinners just like my home. For, for you to see it, you have to enter into it. For you to then say, that's how Zimbabweans normally have dinner, right? And for me to understand how dinners happen in this country, I've gotta get in. And so for people to understand how do people who are kingdom people live? What pains do they have? What things do they face? What struggles come upon them? You have to invite somebody into your home and let them see you as you really are. And in that moment where you provide that intimacy, they're able to see or have a glimpse of what the kingdom is all about. I love this story, if you've ever read it. Second Kings chapter 7, verse 9. So then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us now therefore come let us go and tell the king's household so let's give a backdrop to what's happening here so there's war that's happening i do believe it's the syrians between israel and there's such poverty in israel that people are giving each other's children up and eating children it was that bad or eating animals it was that bad and the The meat of a donkey was very expensive because things were that bad. So then these two lepers decided, hey, you know, if we chill here, we're going to die. If we go to the Syrians, we might die too. But, hey, they might just have pity on us and they say, hey, work here and then we will eat food that they provide. So let's take our chances because either way we're going to die. So they decide to go to the Syrian camp. When they get there, nobody's there. Because God has caused a massive confusion, and they all ran away thinking that they were under attack. And so they left the bounty there. They left everything there. So these two cats get to this camp, and when they get there, they have their fill. They eat, and they grab gold, right? It's a camp that had so many things. And they grabbed it, and they were starting to hoard these things. And that's when they decide to say, you know what? What we're doing here is not right. Right? We need to go tell the king because we have all this good stuff that's in front of us. And honestly, the two of us, or the four of us, will not be able to take every single thing here and eat every single food. And we have people that are starving over on the other side. So they go and tell the king, and this is how the famine or the poverty is broken when they come in and they begin to take the stuff that God had laid up for them. But so it is with you and I and the possessions that we gather and the things that we have. That it is not good for us to then hold on to this beautiful message, this gospel message that we have heard, this love that God has poured upon us, that he has lavished his grace upon us. It is not good for us to hold on to it because what we are doing is not good. There are other people out there who have no option no chance to taste and see that the lord is good but it is happening in your home because god is going to bless your home we're studying altars right now and when we studied, we started with the altar of our heart which god already took off when you accepted christ as lord and savior but the next altar that has to be fixed after that is the altar of your home You've got to fix your home, because if your altar of your home is fixed, then you see that God has blessed your home, not just so that you can just shout praises and you should, but so that you can be a blessing to somebody else. So what we're doing, if we're not allowing people into our homes, and again, when you hear this, I don't know what images form in your head, I'm not saying every Monday, every Tuesday, every Wednesday. I'm not even saying once a week. I'm not even saying once a year or once a I'm just saying. You've got to figure out in your heart between yourself and God, what does that look like to you? If it looks like nothing, then you're not hearing this message. But you've got to figure out your spot and got to figure out how you do things. I know some people care about their possessions because they've got prized possessions. they got that great China that came from Grandma Rosie back in the 40s, right, Rosie? <laughs> they, got, they got their china and they got their stuff and they're caring about it. And that's fine. But to figure out how, with, the midst, with all that God has blessed you, how can your home be an extension or an embassy of the kingdom to which people can come in and have a glimpse and see that you are indeed blessed by God? So this is the image that is given when the invitation to the banquet is sent out. Remember the parable says that there were people that were invited to this banquet but they didn't show up. And the man goes, fine, go into the street, invite anybody who's willing to come. And that should be a heart. Start in the places that you are comfortable. You will find that you will grow in this, and eventually you will be sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit to know who exactly you ought to invite, who exactly you ought to bring into your home. And you will be amazed at what God would do with your ministry. See, here's my thought. Don't say this out loud because Pastor Josh might fire me, okay? (laughs) The pulpit. Oh, I'm okay, my bishop is in the back there. He'll protect me, (laughs) Bishop Casey. I guess Bishop Casey Bush has my back. That pulpit is the least powerful platform that God presents to us. The pulpit in your home is much more powerful. That pulpit, the job of that pulpit is to edify you to do good works. That's what that pulpit is for. So when you come Sunday in, Sunday out, the idea is to empower you, to edify you, to encourage you, then you take that and you run with it in the pulpit of your homes. So when people clamor and say, give me a chance, give me a chance, I often think to myself, my goodness, and the many chances that God has presented in front of you, you have not taken, but you want that one. So then the question is are you really seeking to preach and minister the gospel, or are you really seeking for your own personal fame? Because you always have a pulpit if it is people you want man there's a lot of people out there that are ready to listen to you and they're ready to hear what you've got to say you just got to step up to the plate and do what god is calling you to do so how does this kingdom embassy well, we've already started talking about it. We talked about the fact that when you're at the dinner table, when you're talking with people, that even in this room, that are strangers to you, that God might be saying, "Hey, you need to know that person a little bit more. You need to know that person a little." You kind of bump it. You know that happens in church, right? You know, you kind of just always walk and you look at somebody. You go, "Huh." You see them again, "Huh." You keep seeing them again. You go, "Huh." And then you just keep going, "Huh." And God is saying. Go talk to them. Go say something. Say, hey, what's your name? Begin with something. This is the safest place. Everybody's expecting to at least talk to a stranger when you're here at church. It's not weird to say hello to somebody at church. They're expecting it. They're wanting it. They're dying for it. So go ahead and say hello and say, man, I always see you. Man, what Do you, do you are you in a group or something? Hey, tell me a little bit about yourself. And then the next time, depending on how comfortable you are, you take them out for a coffee or a lunch or whatever, and you get to know them, and you share and you break bread right here. Because Acts chapter 2 doesn't have to look exactly like Acts chapter 2 for Acts chapter 2 to be happening. Then you break Starbucks together. <laughs> and if you're cheap, you break McDonald's together. Okay, so you're breaking it. While you're breaking McDonald's or Starbucks or you're breaking coffee at New Song <laughs> by the table, you can start to talk about doctrine. What do you think of the message that you heard? What do What You think about this. Wouldn't it be amazing if somebody struggled with a point? that you understood, then all of a sudden you say, oh, this is how I understand it. Because you don't sound like Pastor Josh, you sound like you, and God uses your tone, your experience, your way, your mannerisms to say exactly the same thing that he said, and all of a sudden, light bulb goes on on somebody. But you know what guarantees that to never happen? Is (laughs) And you keep going, huh? and you keep going. We never get here. And the Bible tells us about fellowship, right? The apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And I'm sure you've heard this, but the Greek word for fellowship is the word uh, koinonia. And it denotes three things, a partnership. Number one, as a partnership. That's fellowship, is a partnership. Why is that? This is the beauty of God, right? It says that the angels go around and around the throne of God, and it seems like every time they come face to face with God, they say, holy, holy are you, Lord, because they see a new revelation of God every time they go around. So my understanding is this. Each of us are created in the image, the express image of God. But the way that we translate that image to others is different from what I do to what you do. There's an understanding of the word of God that I have that you don't have. There's an expression of the word of God that I have that you don't have. So it's a partnership because in order for me to grow in my knowledge and understanding of God, I've got to talk to you. Because when I talk to you, I see God in a different light than the light that he has given me. And then you see God in a different light. And I go, wow. I never saw it that way. I never understood it that way. Or well, you solidify a revelation that I had with your experience and your story. The good news. Guys, the good news is not being born again. Being born again is the process to getting you to the good news. And the good news is to set the captives free. If I'm born again, but I'm still bound, it's not good. But being born again is the process. I get born again, I see the kingdom, and then the kingdom tells me, no, you are free. That it is for freedom that Christ has died, so I don't have to live in bondage anymore. That's good news. It's like somebody takes your money, steals your money away from you, and then you, f- you fight. Somebody goes and fights for you and says, okay, I got your money, it's in the bank. Here's the checkbook. And all you do is hold on to the checkbook. Is that good? Oh, you gotta write your a check. <laughs> Go cash it, and then you get the money, right? Being born again is the checkbook. You just gotta hold the checkbook and say, ha ha, I got a checkbook a <laughs> checkbook? No, the celebration is you're walking in freedom. And what I'm telling you is, there's certain freedoms you don't experience because you do not coin or near with people. But when you coin or near with people, Paul says something in a certain way that just, oh my gosh, the light just goes on. And you get to see it and understand it, you get to envisage it. Remember Philip? Philip was this guy from e- e- Ethiopia, right? It was Ethiopia, and he was reading the Bible, but he couldn't understand what he was reading. It was the eunuch who was, then, and then Philip, Philip is the apostle who was then sent over to this eunuch guy. That means it's possible to read the Bible and it glaze over your head. That means I need you. I need you. Come and tell me, hey, hey, this is what the Lord has done for me. And this is how I understand it. We're even back to doctrine. The other thing for koinonia is contributory help. So number one is partnership. So we partner together. I give you my expression of God. You do the same. We grow together in our understanding of who the Lord is. Contributory help. Okay? People always want ministry. Show me what to do. Lord, what is my purpose? Tell me why I'm here. We love that. Then we read the verse that says, help the poor. Show me what to do. (laughs) Give me my purpose. Visit the sick. Show me, and that's what we do. Because we want a grandiose thing. I want you to tell me that I'm an apostle. That's what I want you to tell me. And even after you tell me, all I'm gonna do is tell people I'm cold. (laughs) to be an apostle but I'm not really going to put it to practice but do you know where I can uh, put my apostleship to practice in my home in my home I don't have the I I don't know how to use the gift of this and the gift of that and the gift of this and we go into this grandiose theological place and God is saying hey if you just open up your home (coughs) to the strangers and the people that put around your life I'm telling you, these gifts will start flying everywhere because all of a sudden you hear, I have this need. And isn't it an amazing thing when you discover you can be the answer to somebody else's need? That God can use you to be the answer to somebody else's need. Koinonia, that's fellowship. If you're not knowing about anybody's needs, you got to ask yourself, what are you doing on this earth? Don't tell me you're an apostle. Don't tell me you're a prophet, because all you want to do is to sound amazing. But if you're not helping anybody at all, and your job is just to tell theology, <laughs> knowledge puffs up. The letter kills. The spirit gives life. What is better, to prophesy about the next 30 years of Amer- for America To feed somebody who's right in front of you What's better Think on these things And then the next is spiritual fellowship That's what koinonia means Partnership, contributory help Spiritual fellowship What is spiritual fellowship Have you ever done one of these amazing things Prayed Have you ever done that Praying No It's amazing Great, telling you once you start, you ain't never gonna stop. It's a type of prayer that is different when you pray with somebody else. One of us put a thousand to flight; two of us send a legion fleeing. It's not two thousand; it's a legion we bond together spiritually to fight against the needs that are around us or the spiritual atmospheres that we face, we come to a place of power. You talk about power. You know, people want power. Power. Give me power. If you want that, you begin to bond with somebody that when you pray and you pray together, And there's a connection that's taking place with your prayers. You begin to see an anointing. The Bible says, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together. It is like the anointing oil that flows on the beard of Aaron right down to the hem of his garment. That means there's an anointing when you and I fellowship. And we miss out on this anointing. Our homes are stuck, closed, or you're waiting for me to open mine. Yeah. You have to find out how your home can be a part of this. You better time me, Rosie because I would take every time in the world, so you better stop me. What differentiates Number two, so number one, how a kingdom embassy works, we're talking about that there is fellowship. we talk about fellowship as koinonia. Number two is that there is prayer, which it just went into as part of understanding spiritual fellowship, prayer. This is what differentiates this type of fellowship, is the continual presence of prayer in the word, fellowship that sees needs and takes them to the Father. So when people get together in the world, because they do, they do experience something, okay? They do experience something. There's a connection that happens because God made that so. But what differentiates worldly fellowship and us is that we have the opportunity to pray one for another. I don't know how to stress the importance and the power of prayer. I don't know how else to stress it. Here's the thing, it, it, we did a teaching on tabernacle teaching, so I'm gonna just segue a little bit into that. See, I write things on the board so that I don't end up preaching, but I think I might preach just now, so give me a second, okay? Bear with me. <laughs> okay, if you understand the tabernacle, You go through different sections of the tabernacle to get to the most holy place. And in that most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant, and in the Ark of the Covenant, between the two cherubims, the voice of the Lord is heard. But before you go there, you come to what is known as the brazen altar. On the brazen altar is where they will take bull, goat, sheep and they would sacrifice that as an atonement for sin now after you leave that then you go to the laver and in the laver you can wash your hands and you'll be able to see your reflection representative of the word now when you're praying and you're thinking about uh, praying and you're thinking through the tabernacle the first thing that you do is you come to the brazen altar which is of flesh this is the brazen altar so when you start praying what normally happens if we're honest Father, thank you. You're blabbering. It's your flesh that has come to this place of prayer. You're not yet connected. You blabber. You just talk. You're just trying to find out. Oh, you think I'm terrible. I'm the worst thing that ever you created. Why would you care about me? And you're sad. And you're just just, just, not, just not there because it's your flesh. And what most of us do is we stop right there and we go back outside. But the thing is you've got to press on. You've got to push forward because when you push forward and you're talking about the Word as you pray, you begin to see your own reflection, and the Bible says the Word washes over you and makes you clean. Once you're now in the Word and you begin to find yourself praying the Word, you press in and go to the next stage. In the next stage, I want to go to this artifact called the table of incense. The table of incense is exactly the same as the brazen altar, it's just that it's a smaller version of the brazen altar. But the table of incense has smoke that is rising up, which the Bible says at the prayers and the worship of the saints. Because when you get here, you stop talking about me, oh my, I'm sad. Give me some bread. And you go to calling God for the nations, for your situation, for your circumstances. And you weep like Hannah. That is not important that it was that are coming out of your mouth, but the heart in which you're praying. Because you press through. That happens if you do it in fellowship with somebody else. What does the Bible say? Where two or three are? In my name there I am in the midst ask anything and what you will ask will be in accordance to his will because you have now come to the table of incense because you sacrificed flesh over here okay I'm not preaching okay number three so one there's fellowship two there's prayer three it is shared as a Family. What does it say here? So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they took the temple and they brought it into the house. The word for house is the word oikos, which means family. So they took what was happening in the temple and they brought it into the house. They took the message that was preached in the church and they brought it into the house. They took all the lessons that were taking place in the church and they brought it to their house. Most of us, what happens in the church ends in the car and never makes it to the house. So then, we rob ourselves of that, that, that. We don't know our needs. We don't have oikos, which is family of lineage. Think on these things. Many a times we take the words that we hear from a pulpit as suggestions, something you might want to adopt. And we chalk it down to I'm just a human being, I struggle, so I'm not gonna do it. But hey, forgive me if I don't get it right. It's just what happens, man. That's life. You're at the brazen altar. You've never pushed past it. Judge yourself so hushly. And then you turn around and you go back, go back out. So you enter his gates with thanksgiving, right? That's why we we'll are praise and worship. Break my heart for what breaks yours? Yes, yes, yes. I'm gonna sing that song, man, David was the point. You get in your car, Bon Jovi starts playing. <laughs> I just I just showed my age, <laughs> and that's it when you get on the phone, you talk to that person that just got you mad the other day, and all that stops. You've just turned back and gone out. Here's a beautiful thing. what we have what we've done in modern church. Is try to practice that right the church is big so we've tried to make it small and put it in our homes so we have groups and that's what we've done because the idea is we take the church we bring it in our home but if we're following the spirit of the lord and we're doing it right this is what the bible says so the bible says So continually, daily, with one accord, in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church, daily, those who were being saved. If you're wanting to grow the kingdom, grow the church, it doesn't happen in the church, it happens in the home. So you bring it from the temple to the home, you grow it in the home, and then you grow the temple And then you grow the church. You want to bring the lost? Bring them into your home. And then bring them to church. Because now they get it. They get it from you. Raw. Unadulterated. It's not the the excellence of the speaker. nor the sound of the musician. But the expression of the kingdom from you. They have you as the basis of understanding the nature of Christ because of how you expressed yourself at the dinner table. Because you showed your vulnerabilities leaving those dishes dirty. You showed your vulnerabilities, toys everywhere, because you know how it is when you got kids. You clean it once, you clean it again. After a while, you go, you know what? doesn't matter. Leave it out there. (laughs) Let them have it. And you bring them in and let them see those toys. Let them see you do real life. Let them see you hurt. Let them see you confused. Let them see you not understand. But at the end of the day saying, pero Dios, but God. Then they go, what is it about you? No matter what is thrown at you, you still say, but God. Give your testimony. They know it. You grow the church. Church, not a building. You put the kingdom in them, right? And the kingdom expands because you were brave enough to say, "This is me," and this is who the Lord. And they say, "I want your God," and then you pray for them. They might never come to New Song, but you grew the church. You grew the church because from small also becomes. No, this is this is families. we do it. Listen, do it. it For those that are listening, Tisha's phone just rang. So, when you see her, let her know she has a good ringing tone. So we often, you fine. We often view groups as making the church smaller, but I want you to view this as making the church larger by being kingdom embassies. Embassies, because now you got a chance to grow the kingdom.